Welcome to Clinical Minds, presented by Metadata. I'm Dan Poppy. Doctors are using all the tools available to them to help their COVID-19 patients. Treatments already on the market that have never been used for COVID-19 before, because COVID-19 didn't exist until now. Today, we're talking about drug repurposing. We're speaking with Dr. David Fagenbaum, a physician, scientist, and author of the national best-selling memoir, Chasing My Cure, a doctor's race to turn hope into action. Battling Castleman disease to save his own life, he spearheaded a global research project that discovered a possible treatment that has put him into extended remission. Now, he's bringing this same approach to COVID-19 and is here to talk with us today about that project. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. First, walk us through uh, the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network and, and why that was important for you to, to put together. Sure. So I became uh, deathly ill with a disease called idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease when I was a third year medical student and um, unfortunately went on to have multiple life-threatening relapses, nearly dying four times before I decided that I would dedicate my life to trying to identify a treatment and, and maybe one day a cure for Castleman disease. And um, I was a medical student at the time, and so I, I certainly dove into the science and, and what we knew medically about the disease but really quickly it became clear that some of the greatest hurdles in the way of progress really had nothing to do with science or medicine. They actually were organizational problems. And so I decided to start the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network so that we could build a global network and really a movement to try to accelerate research for Castleman disease, taking a new approach that had never been taken before. You've turned your approach from Castleman's and, and you're applying it to COVID-19. Um, walk us through what you're trying to accomplish there. We have always felt it's very important to understand what drugs already exist that are already FDA approved that might actually have an effect on the disease based on what we're finding in the lab. And this is this concept of drug repurposing, which is certainly in the news a lot right now with COVID-19. And drug repurposing is really, really exciting. Now, these are drugs that are already at your neighborhood pharmacy. We already know safety. We know how they work. Um, but the, it also is really important that if you do drug repurposing, you have to track how well these drugs actually perform when you give them to people. I'm alive right now, Dan, because of a drug that no one had ever thought to try for Castleman disease that I identified for my research and started taking um, over six years ago. So when COVID-19 first really reached the U.S. a few months ago, uh, I found myself hoping and praying that some researcher out there would follow our blueprint. And then I was like, wait a minute. You know, if I'm going to hope that some researcher somewhere that studies cytokines um, and drug repurposing is going to, you know, follow our approach, maybe we should just follow our approach. Even when we started on March 13th, which was fairly early in, um, in the pandemic here in the U.S., uh, there were already dozens of drugs that had been used um, to treat COVID-19. So we decided to first invest in this project, what we call the Corona Project, where we are capturing data on patients from around the world that have COVID-19 that have been treated with various drugs. What drugs have been given? How frequently have they been given? You are collecting research from around the world. We we hear about the, the race for a cure um, in the news every day. We would hope as um, patients that that there's a, a coordinated effort, but you are taking it upon yourself to to um, bring all of this research together. Why why is that the case? Why why are individual researchers doing this, and why is it not a, a national effort? Real world data 
doesn't follow the rules like clinical trial data where you have a drugs given this day and a blood sample is taken that day. Um, real world data is real world and people get drugs and they don't get drugs and they get tests and don't, don't get tests. So it's a lot more complicated. And as a result, not just in COVID-19, but in a number of, of fields, real world data is often generated, but it's, um, it's not as systematically studied as you would hope. I mean, in this day and age in 2020, there's more medical record data being generated every day than you could even fathom. Yet, amazingly, most, almost all of that medical record data is not in any sort of an interoperable form to be able to perform analyses across health systems. So, so that's why we need organizations like Medidata to, to be able to crack these sort of problems. Um, but for now, uh, small research labs and foundations like the CDCN, um, you know, we're, we're trying our best uh, to do what we can against COVID-19. I want to take a step back. Drug repurposing, a drug is approved, is, it goes through clinical trials, it's approved, we understand what it is. Why do we have to keep researching it uh, for another disease if we already know how it works? That's an important question. So once a drug gets approved, any doctor in the United States can prescribe that drug for any reason they want. So if this, if your drug is approved for uh, for cancer, it's a chemotherapy. Your doctor, in theory, could prescribe that chemotherapy for hair loss. Um, I wouldn't recommend it. It actually would cause hair loss. But um, but doctors can prescribe any drug for any reason. For people like me who have diseases that don't have options, we love the idea of a drug that's already FDA approved, that's already been shown to be safe in some other condition. We know how it works to be able to be repurposed for our given disease. But I think that some of the things we've been watching on the news remind us that that some drugs that you know seem like they're going to work really well could actually cause harm. And so that's why, in my opinion, well, if I had to summarize why it's important. So one is that it's safe and effective. We know that already. Another is just on the opposite end of the spectrum, how expensive it is to develop new drugs. And then the third reason that you need to study it is because it actually might cause harm and that, that you need to study it to make sure that it's not causing harm in this new condition. You can't assume just because it works for one condition, it's going to work for another. And just because it's safe in one condition doesn't mean that it's going to be safe in another. So where does your project stand now, the, the COVID project? In our first 12 days, thanks to an army of volunteers, we were able to go through data from over 2,500 papers in the first 12 days. And from that effort, pull out data on 9,152 patients treated with COVID-19. That was really a Herculean effort to get through all of that data and to wrangle it into one place. We published a paper about a week or two ago reporting out those findings. And Dan, you're not going to believe this. Over 100 drugs were used in the first 9,000 patients, 100 different drugs. We hear about three or four of them in the news almost every day, but there are another 100 plus that have been tried in various capacities. So doctors are trying a lot of things out there, and just a few of them are moving on to clinical trials. Our feeling from the beginning, and I have to admit, when we first started the project, I thought there would maybe be 20 or 30 drugs. I did not expect there to be over 100 in that short of a period of time. But the key thing for us is to say, well, if all these drugs are getting tried, and some of them are working, and most of them are not being studied in clinical trials, 
we need to have a database that tracks all of these drugs so that pharmaceutical companies can say, okay, I have this particular agent. It's been used a thousand times. Maybe I should think about doing a, a clinical trial of this drug. Um, we know that these data are already being used by researchers around the world. We also know that companies are using the data, and that's how we want it. We've made it free and publicly available. Anyone can use it at any time, and um, and we just want to be able to be a part of the solution. I, I am shocked by that number of, of drugs. Why are there so many? Why have we only heard about a few of them? What are your initial thoughts on, on what we're seeing? So out of the 160 or so drugs that have been tried, more than 100 of them have been given to less than 1% of the patients. So there's a lot of drugs that have been given to five people or two people or one pe- one person, and um, and they might seem like they're working in two people, but it's hard to get a sense um, for how, how effective a drug is when the N equals two. Um, so there's a long tail of, of drugs that have been used very infrequently, but there are at least a, a good 50 of them that have been used in, in, in hundreds, potentially thousands of patients. Is there a common theme around the drugs that you're seeing? Probably one of the biggest takeaways from this effort, um, which is a bit disheartening, but it's just the way it is, is how heterogeneous um, the response to COVID-19 is for an individual patient. So you've, I know, read all about how patients can be asymptomatic carriers and then you know, someone that's the same age and everything seems similar about them and they end up in ICU with multi-organ failure. Most people who die from COVID-19 really are not dying from the virus. They're dying from an overactive response to the virus, what's called a cytokine storm. Cytokine storms are also what kill you in Castleman disease. And what I've you know, spent a good bit of my life trying to understand is how do these cytokines work? Why, why would your immune system, which is supposed to be protecting you, actually cause all this collateral damage that ends up killing you? And we, we don't know why, but we certainly know how it does it. And there are certain targets and certain aspects of the immune system that you can go after with drugs to help to quiet down and calm down the immune system. So I, I share all of this to say that I wish that there was going to be a single silver bullet that was going to help everyone. But what we see right now suggests that it's likely that different drugs are going to be needed for different patients. And so they're going to need drugs that both help to suppress the virus, the replication of the virus, but also potentially help to boost up the immune response. And then there's some people who get the exact same virus and have a hyper response. They get a cytokine storm because their immune system is trying to fight the virus, but in doing so, it causes all of this mass destruction all throughout the body. Those people are going to need drugs targeted at the virus, but they're also going to, most importantly, they're going to need drugs that actually suppress and weaken the immune response because their immune response is too strong. And those are like opposing drugs. The drugs that boost it are the opposite of the ones that suppress it. So COVID-19 has, I think, reshaped our thinking about uh, global health and and the way we um, think about disease and the way we treat disease uh, from, I can say that from the patient perspective, um, what does it mean for you from the the research, the physician scientist perspective? I think that there's a lot that um, that we need to reflect on as a as a physician scientist patient community um, about what we can take away from COVID nineteen. And as I said earlier, you know, create some positive for other diseases. Um, there are a few lessons that immediately come to mind, and I think I'm going to need to take some more time to come up with 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 more of them. But the initial ones that really stick out, um, the first of which is this idea of creating silver linings. So let's 
create something positive out of something really, really negative. Um, this is a lesson I actually learned from my mom. My mom used to, or a lot of times we're encouraged to um, look for silver linings in life. You know, something bad happens. What could we, what can we find that's positive? But, but she really always encouraged me to say, let's not just look for silver linings in the midst of a really bad thing. Let's see, what can I do today to create a silver lining? How can I make a silver lining in the midst of a storm? And I, and I think an example of that would be this Corona project that we're um, you know, trying to create something positive um, out of something that is, as I said earlier, just unequivocally negative. Um, so, so that's one. Another is um, the idea of turning hope into action. And um, hope is, is often uh, you know, considered such a, a positive thing. I think hope can be really, really positive. And, and I, I talk about hope a lot in Chasing My Cure. But I think that hope on its own is, is often not enough. I think that what we really need is to turn our hope into action. So as I was sitting there hoping that some researchers somewhere would start doing COVID-19 research, kind of following our blueprint, um, that, that obviously was not enough. I needed to realize, okay, if this is what I'm going to hope for, then I should probably use that to inspire my action. And so I think that I mean, we're seeing this around the country separate from COVID-19 and, and people standing up against what's happening right now um, around the United States with race issues. And so I think this is this is turning hope into action. And um, I, I think COVID-19 has taught us that. I think, I think what we're all facing right now um, has certainly also taught us that. Another is a concept uh, that solutions can be hiding in plain sight. So the drug that I'm on was at my neighborhood pharmacy for years some of these COVID-19 drugs are sitting in shelves in pharmacies that no, no one had ever thought to try. And, and I think that we just need to realize that there are likely many other diseases out there where there are patients who are dying from those diseases or are certainly struggling from them, where we just need to figure out the solution that, that is already out there. Um, that, that is just incredibly important. And then I think the last one, is around the urgency that COVID-19 has given us. For those of us in the rare disease community and those of us that have diseases that that take um, take people from our community all the time, we've always felt a sense of urgency. We've always recognized that the clock is ticking. I, I, can, I call it overtime, this idea that the clock is ticking and that we're running out of time. But I think that COVID has created a similar sense of overtime for all of us, um, where it feels like, wow, we really need to do this and we need to do it quickly. I really hope that that sort of urgency is going to spill over in, into other diseases. Dr. David Fagenbaum is the author of Chasing My Cure, Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. David, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. And thanks so much for all that you and your colleagues do for patients like me. This has been Clinical Minds presented by Metadata. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. Let us know what you want us to talk about on the show. We would love that. And we'll see you next time. Bye.